I work very hard in my life to not traffic in anxiety, and I'm, you know, I'm getting okay at it. But then I look at a, a, a set of readings like we have this morning and think, I got to admit, it makes me a little nervous. Like, how am I supposed to possibly faithfully comment on 50 uh, verses of, of Scripture? In fact, I think Alan ought to get some sort of award. Like, that was a flawless reading of a whole chapter of the Bible in public. Wow. I think that is, a, that is a record in Holy Trinity. I don't think anybody's read that much of the gospel ever before in, in one reading. So I just want to say, for the, you know, if nothing else, for the sake of intellectual honesty, I mean, I have to make choices when I'm faced with this, and I, I tend to make the choices two ways. Is first, I ask myself, well, you know, why are we reading this in Lent? You know, why has the church and her wisdom you know, provided this as a, a reading in Lent. It's also sometimes passages of it are read in Advent as well. And then I also just ask, like, what's the Lord saying to us through this text? So in that sense, I'm being a classical priest. You know, I'm standing before the Word of God and, you know, before you and trying to make some sense conversationally of, of what the Lord might be saying to us in this text. So what I like to do this week in a, you know, in a brief sermon in the midst of a Eucharistic service is to just do some review of John 9. Uh, John 9 is a, is a classic scholarly passage. There's tons of scholarly debate. Tens of thousands of pages of commentary have been written on John 9. There's tons of classic John devotional sort of spiritual stuff in it. But let's just review it and, and get the, the main uh, thread of the story. So this blind man was a social outcast. And this was based on the traditional Jewish view that if he was blind... He must have deserved it. Now, not exactly in a mean-spirited way, but just that, well, something, you know, people just aren't born blind, so it must have been something either his parents did or something that he did. And so Jesus teaches against this view. And one of the main ways he teaches, and this is always true of Jesus, it's never just words, but it's also works. And the words and works of Jesus, he actually said this explicitly of himself, these things both communicate the gospel of the inbreaking of the kingdom through me. And so a way that he, one of the ways that he teaches against this is that through healing, he does what's classic in the gospel of John, and that is he performs a miraculous sign. So the healing is real. I mean, imagine yourself being born blind and having never seen. So what this man experiences is very real. But it's not just that. It's also a miraculous sign to everybody around them who sees this. Well, then, you know, you heard the story. The religious leaders are uptight at Jesus because he did it on the Sabbath. He made mud on the Sabbath, went against their interpretation of what you could or couldn't do on the Sabbath. And so here I want to pause and say that this raises a contemporary question. And that is, who gets to divide the world between those who see rightly and those who are blind or distorted? So, I mean, this is always the easy illustration. Just think of our political rhetoric. Right? The, the flinging back and forth of you're blind, you know, you're an idiot, you know, you don't get it. You know, so, so in our culture today... Who gets to be the one who says, no, this is seeing rightly, and this is a distorted way of seeing? Like, who has the luxury of such a perspective 
that they can kind of rise above cultural dialogue of any kind from the first century to the 21st century. Who gets to rise above and have enough perspective to say, no, this is actually good thinking, this is good seeing, this is distorted seeing. And the reason this is hard is that this is a question ultimately of authority. But when a society becomes suspicious to all truth claims, and when all previous forms and locations of authority, that is to say, is authority located in our educational institutions? You know, think of our really fine universities and their research projects. Is, is that where authority is properly located? Or is authority properly located in the church? Or in science? Or in forms of patriarchy? Right? Where a monarchy? Like, where is authority located? Where are the spaces and places and people who have authority? But when you live in an age like we do, when all that has been thrown off, well, then all that's really left to know, I want you to try to feel this, all that's left to really know is our experience. And this explains much of human behavior today and much of human debate. Because I can know my experience of eating, of drinking, of traveling, of consuming, and participating in the specific kind of sex that I want to participate in. I can know that. I can, and I can then have, so then my sense of authority becomes that which I can know by experience to feel good and right to me. Now, it's important to say, because Christians sometimes make a mistake here, that we're not dualists. We're not saying that eating is bad or drinking is bad or travel is bad or buying what you need is bad or appropriate sex is bad. We're not saying that. And the Christians can say that sometimes authority does need challenged and updated. I mean, I've flown enough to Australia and New Zealand and South Africa and places like that enough to know that the world is apparently round. So the scientific consensus at some point needed to be updated. And there are times in human history where sources of authority and what they claim to know does need to be updated. So Christians don't have to become dualists. We don't have to become anti-science. It's just that for us living in the day we're living in, I think it's important to know that this angst over authority, I want to suggest, is at the bottom of so much of our societal discourse. And, so, and at the bottom of so much of what works against us even being neighborly. So, for instance, for progressives, everything new is better. And basing things on human experience is a good thing. Or you find progressives often um, alluding to brain theory, as if our brains should be the source of authority in the world. There's a constant appeal to the various social sciences as an appeal to authority. On the other hand, to conservatives, we, you know, conservatives want to go back. Um, that we need to go back to previous authorities and previous truth claims because they're the best. And, of course, the difficulty is here is that depending on the topic, each side can be right. I mean, if you've ever wondered, why doesn't Hunter make obvious political statements in the pulpit? It's because neither one of those parties speak for me. And I don't speak for them. I'm trying to be a follower of Jesus live my life in the kingdom as he embodied it, taught it, and explained it, and derive my life from it, not from a political party. 
Neither one of those even get close to speaking for the comprehensiveness of Jesus and God's kingdom. I mean, it's not even close. I mean, they might occasionally have a little sliver of something that's true or right, but in the main and plain, it feels today like even when they're right, they're wrong in their attitude, right? And wrong in their, you know, explanations and pushiness on it. But, but still, we're left with this question, okay, but, but how can we tell who's right when? And for John the Evangelist, like for John who wrote this book as an evangelist, what we now think of the Gospel of John, his answer was always Jesus. Like if you have competing truth claims, so our religious history says this man was born blind because of some sort of sin. Jesus is saying, no, that actually doesn't have anything to do with it. It just happened. But now God is working through me and he's going to manifest himself through me in the healing of this person. So now you have these competing truth claims. And John always wants to say, Jesus is the light of the world. Now, what does light do? It reveals. It shows what's true. It makes manifest what's always been there that you couldn't see without the light. And so for John, now I'll admit he's being an evangelist. He, he is arguing that through Jesus, light is coming into the world and it's revealing truth and it's enabling others to see this truth as well. And this, I mean, I can't know this for sure, but this is why I think we read this in Lent is that we're praying through Lent that the light of the world would make our true selves and God's true self plain to us and that these Lenten practices, so think of scent and sight, these Lenten practices, in a sense, they kind of send us on a journey of some sort of fasting or some sort of augmenting your life by some new spiritual disciplines and there's a kind of scentness in this Lenten journey there that's meant to wash us and that this light is meant to help us make our way to God and his purposes the best we can. To just do our best to trust and follow Jesus. And then look at me. And for you to know that is enough. That's, that's all you need to do right now. Just best you can. Make your way towards Jesus. Like a moth drawn to the flame. The light of the world these little Lenten practices just create little steps, little dots that can be connected to very simple things. Like he's shown you, oh man, oh woman, what this fundamentally means. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love, Paul said, is the zenith of all these things. This is ultimately very simple. And this simplicity is an elegant simplicity. It's not simplistic. There's an elegance to it that rises above social discourse of any generation or of any century and says, this is what makes sense of this. Going back to the story, Jesus finds the man who he healed who now has become a further outcast in the community because he's claimed that Jesus did it. And he asked the man who was healed if he wants to put his trust in Jesus. The man, being honest, is seeking more clarity and says, I, you know, basically, I don't know. I mean, here's what I do know. Once I was blind and now I see. And my sense of Jewish tradition suggests to me that perhaps you're a prophet who's doing miracles the way our prophets did. But then Jesus invites him to take this further step. 
When he asked him directly, do you believe in the Son of Man? And then suddenly, and this is such a classic sort of John's, you know, sort of spiritual thing, suddenly the man can see clearly, right? Like he's already been healed, but now he's seeing spiritually clearly, and he says, I believe, I worship. Now those two little words, again, I mean, we could do a whole sermon on I worship. Essentially that says, with all of my personal pain, personal confusion of all the people who have speculated all my life about my blindness, with all of the religious pain and controversy that's been stirred up and through all this thing, all those disparate painful elements of my life are now falling into place like a zipper, you know, where all the little teeth just come into place. And he's saying, I can see now you're the zipper. I worship. I give you preeminence. You're, you are who what makes everything make sense. And in you, I mean, he doesn't say this, but in you I can see what's real and, and I'll follow you. Well, this is what John the Evangelist is always shooting for in chapter 1. You have Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel coming to faith. In chapter 3, you've got the story of Nicodemus and Jesus rearranging his whole world. And we see later, at least we think, that Nicodemus does come to faith. Chapter 4, you have the Samaritan woman at the well who's every bit as much of an outcast in different ways as this man born blind. And on and on and on goes the Gospel of John. Because what John is shooting for, and again, I think this is our Lenten message, what John is always shooting for is deep, confident faith. That's the final step John always wants people to make. And I just want you to notice this morning how that's a very different thing than joining a world religion. It's a very different thing even than joining a denomination. It's a very different thing than joining a church. That's such an anachronism, you know, such an unhistorical way of looking at things. That you just have to stop and think for a minute. Those kind of things could have never crossed John's mind, right? I mean, John was not thinking anti-Buddhism or, you know, anything like that. He's saying, no, I want you to come to trust and follow Jesus to make this final step of deep, competent faith. And it's fair for you to say to me, well, Todd, how are you so confident in that? And I would say, because John said so himself at the end of the book. I wrote these stories down. Why, John? Why'd you write these down? That you might come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by placing your confidence in him, you might have life. This is why John says he's writing that you could have life in the name of Jesus. And that's kind of a technical thing we can't get into, but it simply means that you would have life that aligns itself and is derived from the character of Jesus. That's what in the name of means. That our lives might take on the character of Jesus as we come to place our lives confidently in him. So all Lent does is it gives us the portions of Advent. It, they just give us these rhythms in our life where we stop for a few weeks and we take on some fasting so we can notice things. We augment some practices in our life. And they're just ways of saying, how is my life aligned or not aligned with the character of Jesus? So we read this text in Lent to remind ourselves of the areas of darkness and blindness in our own lives. And, and in this text, we're invited to take further steps in believing in and trusting in Jesus. So in a sense, these Lenten practices in this reading can be seen in the sense of being sent and washed for the effect, as we read in our epistle reading this morning, that we would learn to live as children of the light. 
that we learn to put off the darkness. Now, now here you can see the, the sort of spirituality um, that lies around this physical healing. It's taking on light, seeing, putting off darkness, letting the light of Christ shine on us, taking on a new identity. Now, again, that's a very Pauline thing to say from, from Ephesians to Colossians, Philippians, uh, everywhere in Paul, there's this sense of we're no longer Jews or Gentiles or slaves or Scythian free, male, female, whatever. No, we are taking on the identity in Christ so that we're rooted in Christ. Learning, as he says, to discern what's good and right and true and to find out what pleases the Lord. And so the idea here is, both sort of biblically and in terms of our Lenten practices, is that in living into these identities, we find an identity that's formed not by our subjective experiences. It includes them, but it's not formed by them or in our various consumptions, but in relationship to God. This is what we're shooting for in Lent is this merging together of our life and the life of God by just noticing what's real, how that's actually working, so that our, our identity is not the identity that's constantly set before us, that I am my sexuality, I am what I consume, I am my favorite taste, but invites us to something that's much higher and much more transcendent. Just think of these biblical ideas and then we're done. John the Baptist. I must decrease so that he can increase. Or John in his epistle, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is who I am. I cannot be reduced to being a leading heterosexual. Nor do I want to be. I am not my sexuality. And I do not want to be reduced to what I drive or where I live. That all gets included, but it is not me. In these Linden practices, I learned that I am indeed a child of God, and that makes all the difference in the world. Or Peter's testimony, you're a chosen people, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Or the classic Pauline passages. You are not your own, you're bought at a price. Or to the Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Or to the Colossians, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Or to the Philippians, but whatever regains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. I want to gain Christ. Now, I just want you to ask yourself, let's just stop with Paul and just wonder with me for a moment. Why do those thoughts so easily pass through his pen or his dictating, whatever the case may be? Just think about it. What would be the qualities of heart and mind that such thoughts would be so a part of everything he wrote? Because he had come to see, literally. Blinded, he had come to see. He had had his own sort of sentness and washedness. And once he could see what was real, it changed everything. And that's the point of our little Lenten practices. 
just to make little moments in our life where we too can come to see what's real. Well, concluding here, I, I know that oftentimes for some of us, as we get into the middle of Lent, we start finding maybe sometimes some little scary places of darkness, some places of darkness that we're worried about. Maybe we find some need for healing. Maybe some of you in the room even have discovered a darkness that seems like a curse that you've been born with and that you're kind of hopeless about it. Like, I'm not sure I'll ever be different in XYZ area or that I have any hope for growth in ABC area. And this text this morning would allow you to stop and think, maybe you're not just an outcast amongst family and friends and colleagues because of XYZ, but that in Christ, you can find healing and a way of seeing. In our quiet moment this morning, I want you to maybe just hold before your mind The man went and washed, and he came home seeing. The man went and washed, and he came home seeing. As you have a quiet moment now, ask yourself, what do you hear Jesus saying? Is there a place where he's sending you, inviting you into a washing that you might have some sort of transcendent knowledge to rise above all the aspects of your life and to see not just puzzle pieces on a table, but the puzzle itself and what your life means. What do you hear Jesus saying?